Well, sometime in the last uh, 12 to 24 hours, I was struck with a, with a bug, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> so I was already on my second or third throat lozenge this morning, and I hope that I can make it through this, so as you think about that, so it won't be a distraction to me or to you that you would pray for me in, in that way. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to try to save my voice a little bit and not sing, but that's almost impossible to do. You know, you, you just, you have to sing. And, and God just kind of hardwires us, I think, to want to worship him and to express our thanksgiving and our praise. So thank you, worship team, for leading us in that way. Uh, but I am heavily medicated, so um, if I fall asleep during my own sermon this morning, you'll know why. Uh, this fall, we're in a series of messages called uh, Taking Back My Life. We have been, and We'll continue to explore, for a few weeks at least, how we can tackle various issues in our lives. And so far, Pastor Ken has had us tackle worry and busyness and insignificance. And today on this Thanksgiving weekend, I want us to try to track, tackle ungratefulness. I don't know if it's just me, but I think that there are signs all around us that point to a culture that is becoming increasingly uh, ungrateful. There is a sense of entitlement. Uh, toss in even our natural inclination towards self-centeredness and greed, and you really have a, a, a recipe for, for ingratitude. As parents, we try to teach our children basic manners, right? Say please, say thank you. And we might still find ourselves reminding them when they are 18 or 28. I really don't want to be a, a downer this morning, but... Perhaps by looking at some negative habits and attitudes that fuel ungratefulness, they can help us live out what is a clear sign of growth and maturity in Christ, namely gratitude. Throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, and in many of the Apostle Paul's letters, it's clear that God wants his children to say thank you. Great comments this morning, uh, Janelle, when we were worshiping. You know, enter with the password, thank you. And in his letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul writes, always giving thanks to God for everything. It's a great summary verse, right? Because what are we to, when are we to give thanks? Always. And what do we give thanks for? Everything. So always and everything. Just kind of covers it off, doesn't it? And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, and be thankful, verse 16, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It appears that our worship of God is really an expression of thanksgiving. Now, there are several psalms that we could turn to that would show us this. Cole read Psalm 95 for us, and that is a great place for us to start this morning. This psalm is about right worship of God. It teaches us how to worship. The psalmist writes, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. So singing is an expression of worship. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And then the psalmist continues in verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And bowing and kneeling are positions of humility and submission. So right worship is, in fact, humble worship. But the psalm doesn't just teach us how to worship. It 
tells us why we should worship. Verse 3, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. In other words, we worship God because he is the creator and sustainer of everything. He is sovereign. That is, he is in control over all of creation. From the very bottom, right? The depths of the earth to the very top, the mountain peaks and everything in between. God sustains it. They belong to him. Psalmist goes on and says that he made the seas. That's why they too are his. His hands formed the land and on that land his sheep graze. We are under his care. It's easy to see why we should be filled with thanksgiving and why we would want to worship him. But the psalm then kind of takes a bit of a turn in that it's not just about worshiping God, but obeying him. And in verses 8 through 11, the psalm describes a, a time when the nation of Israel did not worship, nor did they obey. And interestingly enough, if we look at some of that history, we can, from a negative example, learn some important things about being filled with gratitude. Theodore Roosevelt is quoted as saying, Comparison is the thief of joy. And I'm going to borrow that phrase, but change it slightly to apply it to thanksgiving. Because I believe that there are actions and attitudes and just the way we, the perspective that we might have that rob us, in fact, of the ability to give thanks. And the first of these is complaining. An interesting thing happened at staff. You guys know that when I speak, my tendency is, is to try to, you know, probably not have any more than three to five points because you're not going to remember much beyond that. I like to try to find some way of helping us keep, you know, memorizing it. So I use a lot of alliteration, right? And you know what alliteration is, starting with the same letter all the time. And so at staff, I, I already on Monday, I had my outline. And so I just kind of shared where I was kind of going with the message. And I kind of, you know, paused on the third one and they were guessing what C word was going to come next. And, and so this was a, a depiction, this slide, this next slide is a depiction of what actually happened. settle in a little bit. But complaining, I believe, is the thief of gratitude. The Old Testament book of Exodus describes Israel's release from slavery in Egypt. Then the book of Numbers continues to tell the story of the Israelites. Geographically speaking, the book of Numbers opens up with the Israelites camped at Mount Sinai, where they had arrived in Exodus chapter 19. And they remained there throughout the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and then the beginning of Numbers, and finally breaking camp in Numbers chapter 10. And then they arrive at the southern border of the Promised Land in chapter 12 of Numbers. Then Numbers 13 and 14 is an account, in fact, of how the Israelites rebelled against the Lord's command to enter into the Promised Land. And as a result of this rebellion, they ended up spending the next 38 years wandering until finally arriving in the plains of Moab, just east of the promised land. But what happened in Numbers chapter 14? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Uh, that's most of where the, uh, the outline of this message will come from. But I'll start reading at verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, 
if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. The text says that they grumbled, which is really another word for complained. Sadly, this is somewhat of a defining characteristic for the nation of Israel. The entire Exodus narrative is marked by their complaining. If it wasn't one thing, it was another. God was providing them with manna to eat, but all they did was remember the meat that they ate in Egypt. Despite their complaining, God still provided quail for them to eat. And when they didn't have water to drink, they complained. And again, God provided them water. You see, they were always seemed to be so focused on what they didn't have that there is never a thought of being thankful for what they did have. And if you listen to their complaints, if only we had died in Egypt, why is the Lord? <laughs> if you just stop and think about how absurd that statement is. They were so ungrateful that they would rather have died in Egypt than live in the wilderness. Aren't some of our complaints similar? If only, if only I was smarter, if only I was better looking, if only I was fitter, if only I had more money, if only I had a better job, if only I had an understanding spouse. And why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Why didn't my plans succeed? Seriously, when you stop and think about some of the things that we complain about, they can be equally absurd. And then see if you can't think of a reason to be grateful instead. So this is kind of the interactive portion of the message this morning. What are some of the things that never you, but people that you know complain about? Any ideas? Throw some out at me. Tired, weather, no time, traffic, right? What about like slow Wi-Fi? <laughs> this morning, I, I think actually we're, we're having a Wi-Fi issue in our church. And so if you're used to like pulling up your Bible on your phone or something like that, and you're trying to connect and it says no internet connection... Um, well, there's a reason for that. We shut it off so that you would have been... No, I didn't. We didn't do that, actually. But seriously, most Wi-Fi is free, but we still complain about it because it's slow. Or slow drive throughs right? Even though you're going to get a nice cup of coffee eventually, or a bag full of food, we're complaining because it takes a few minutes longer. We heard the weather. <laughs> Need I say more? Janelle, great point this morning. There's lots of reason, even in the midst of that, to find ways to be thankful rather than to grumble and complain about it. The toilet seat being left up. <laughs> Having nothing to wear. Complaining about people complaining. Driving. Somebody said traffic. 
I'm going to make a confession this morning. This is absolutely my Achilles heel. When I'm, I'm driving, it's just like this long, continuous monologue pointing out all the dumb things all the other people are doing. And it just absolutely drives Tina and the kids crazy. She just like looks over at me and just goes, Norm, you need to relax. But I just, I can't stop. It's almost like a gift. <laughs> but seriously, when you, when you drive, don't you see and experience kind of that me first attitude of so many? I mean, anyone trying to get out of the southwest Twilliger area here on any given day can testify to this, and especially this past Wednesday. You may recall on that day there was a, an accident on the white mud going east, uh, westbound, and it completely shut that down. And then I think because people were either rubbernecking, there was either a rear-ender on the eastbound lanes. And I pulled up Google Maps a little bit too late, and just every single road in the southwest was red, just Total gridlock, it seemed like, in the entire west side. And so I was taking Lucas. I, I drive, Lucas is going to university, and so I sometimes drive him to the South Campus LRT station so he can just take the train in a few blocks or to Century Park. And we're on Twilliger Drive is when we realized that this was going to be a total nightmare. And, uh, and Lucas says, well, maybe we can still go to Century Park. And I'm already north of 23rd Avenue. So I want to get, I'm in the inside lane. I want to get into the right lane. This guy... He wouldn't even let me in. And I, I had my signal light on. I was just going slow. I wasn't like trying to cut anybody off. I, I was being quite generous about the whole thing. And, and finally I realized I'm going to have to drive like the people in El Salvador drive. They, they just force themselves in. What's he going to do? Hit me? Like that's a big loss for him, right? So literally I just forced myself in. And, and, you know, eventually he has to kind of slow down and let me get into that lane so that I can go right on Rabbit Hill Road and get out of this to some degree. And when I pulled in, I kind of did the sarcastic, thank you for nothing, right? And I think it was the next day on Twitter, I read a tweet. Yes, I actually follow Edmonton traffic on Twitter. It says, this guy wrote, that's it. I'm done letting people in. Only like one in five today has waved. I think I was that one guy. But. <laughs> you know what? <clears throat> Next time someone makes space for you to merge in, make sure you say thank you. And if they don't, thank them anyway. But let's be thankful that we have cars and roads and public transit. And, and it's all relatively safe. I mean, when you're in, like... You know, I mentioned El Salvador, and we've gone there as a, as a church on a mission trip a few times. And, and, you know, you see the public transit buses there that are like, you know, a 30-passenger bus, and there's 60 people crammed into this bus, all living with the fear of the possibility of gang members jumping on that bus and extorting a dollar or two from every single person on the bus and making a quick 60 bucks and then leaving. We don't live with that fear. So let's watch the things that we complain about and then see if we can't turn it around and find ways to express thanks for what that might reveal. I mean, the Israelites complained and it was a sign of rebellion. Let's be different. Secondly, 
Comparison is the thief of gratitude. We see the Israelites doing this too. Continuing on in verse 3 of chapter 14 of Numbers, he says, Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other. We should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Oh, really? You know, this is like a classic case of thinking that the grass is somehow greener on the other side of the fence. Now, keep in mind that that all of this is happening after the spies had returned from their reconnaissance mission. Only Joshua and Caleb out of the 12 returned saying, hey, we can in fact do this. We can take this. This land is absolutely incredible and God's going to help us. But the other 10 spies have said that they spread a negative report saying, no, we can't. They're bigger than us, stronger than us, and we will pay with our lives. Now I take you back to Exodus chapter 1, and the Israelites, in fact, were in slavery and in bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, Phrases such as, worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, with all kinds of work, and in all their harsh labor. It says it twice in one verse. And that's what they want to go back to? Somehow that was going to be better than where they found themselves? Why would they think that? Well, like many of us, they had selective memories. And in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4 through 6, it says this, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. See, they were only remembering the variety of food that they ate in Egypt. And now they're comparing it to the manna that God was providing for them each day. Now, of course, they they didn't bother to mention the severe hardship that went along with these things. And of course it was free that there was no cost to it. They were slaves. They were fed. Now, you might argue that eating the same thing day after day probably would become tiring. But we shouldn't think of manna as just some dry, crusty old piece of bread. In Numbers 11, 7 to 8, it's described like this. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. Not not a very attractive look, mind you. But the people went around gathering it. And then they ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. Olive oil. It's not that bad. I have a friend that drizzles olive oil on all of his pizza because it's not greasy enough to begin with. But think kind of rich and tasty. It's not that bad. In other parts, man is described as wafers made with honey. This wasn't just like a bunch of dry crackers. God was looking after them and providing them. And yet, they were so sick and tired of it that all they could think about was, oh, how good they had it in Egypt. And so in spite of the fact that they had as much to eat as they wanted, they're comparing the food that they were eating now in the wilderness to the food they ate when they were in slavery. 
And as a result, we're pretty ungrateful. Do we ever do the same thing? I find myself sometimes standing in our pantry looking at several shelves full of food and say, well, what's there to eat? (laughs) Or we compare ourselves and our situations to others and we can't be thankful for what we do have. You think about it, right? It happens so insidiously sometimes, right? We, we go visit a friend and they got new dishes. Now we want new dishes. Or they renovated their kitchen. And now yours is in need of updating. You see a friend as you compliment, um, and you compliment their style. All the while secretly wishing that you could have something similar. And don't even get me started on Facebook posts. You see, it is just so easy for us to compare ourselves to others. But with each comparison, we feel just a little less adequate. And it gets worse, right, if we just sit around and dwell on this over and over and over again. And comparing ourselves to others just blinds us to what we should be excited about in our lives. And when we compare, we we simply don't measure up. We tend to compare our worst with another's best. Or dare I say, the perception of the best. And that just makes us feel terrible. Feeling despair over who we are or what we look like diminishes the fact that God loves us just the way that we are. And he created us just the way that we are. And if complaining requires us to be thankful for what we have, comparison, I think, requires us to be content with what we have and who we are. And it's that contentment that ultimately fuels our gratitude. And lastly, conflict is the thief of gratitude. As you read on in Numbers 14, you'll discover that the Israelites' initial complaining was directed against Moses and Aaron. And even though Joshua and Caleb encouraged the Israelites to trust God, that the land that they explored was, in their words, exceedingly good. And they described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. And that they should trust God to lead them into this promised land. And in spite of all of that, the Israelites were now convinced that the issue was in fact the leadership. And particularly Moses and Aaron. And we read in Numbers 14, verse 10, But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. I mean, this was getting serious. I mean, earlier they were just considering choosing a new leader that would take them back to Egypt. But now they are talking about taking Moses and maybe even Aaron and Joshua and Caleb too, taking them out. Let's just get rid of them. Let's kill them. They led us into this mess. And their complaining and comparing has clouded their perspective as it always does. Instead of being grateful for leaders who walked with God, prayed and asked God to provide for them, which he did, they then turn on the leaders. The criticism that the Israelites directed at Moses was a heavy burden for him as a leader. The conflict that he was enduring sapped his energy as a leader. He complained too, don't don't get me wrong, but, but he directed his complaints to God, not at them or the people. 
And, and, and he complains to God in, 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 in a really epic rant in Numbers 11, 11 through 15. Maybe you're familiar with this. He says, he, this is Moses talking to God now. He says, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? <laughs> this is great. Did I conceive all these people? Like, do I have some responsibility for them? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I think it was more like, give us meat to eat. But I'm not sure. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please just go ahead and kill me. If I found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own room. I mean, it was just an honest and vulnerable plea for mercy and help from God. And it gives you a sense of the hardship that Moses was experiencing as a leader and what the conflict between him and the Israelites was doing to them. No expressions of gratitude here. Just complaining, comparing, and conflict. A total loss of perspective will do that. It's hard being a leader. Want a current illustration of this? Peter Shirelli, general manager of the Oilers. Ten seasons of losing and not making the playoffs. No fault of his own. He makes some bold changes, as you know, if you're a fan of the Oilers. He traded Taylor Hall in the summer, and then this week, uh, training Nail Yakupov. Two first overall round draft picks gone. And if you read some of the reactions on social media or you listen to some of the sports talk shows and how people are texting in or calling in, you know that people are just ready to run this guy out of town. And I bet on his job description, wherever it was, like under requirements, the very first thing probably was thick skin. Because he knew that he was going to be in a position where he's going to make decisions that people are either going to love or they're going to hate. And they'll just, they hate him, they'll make sure that he knows and everybody else knows. But what about our worlds? When you are in conflict with another person for whatever reason, have you ever discovered how hard it is to be thankful for that person? I doubt that The people that we may vilify sometimes are as bad as we really think they are. Would we be able to find something about another person to be able to express our gratitude? And maybe, just maybe, if we find one thing, we might find two, maybe even three or more things. And and then as Thanksgiving slowly creeps back into our hearts, it provides the motivation to go and make peace with that person. I think it does. And you know this. When we have unreconciled relationships, just, it wears on us emotionally, spiritually, even physically. I just think if we turn it around, 
found some gratitude, it would change the way we would view that person. So friends, let's not let complaining and comparing and conflict steal our gratitude on this Thanksgiving day or really any day. See what God is doing. See how God is providing. See how God is guiding in any and every situation. And then direct your praise and thanksgiving to him. Because he alone is worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you just for the reminder of how easy it is sometimes for us to grumble and complain about things. Lord, I pray that in all that we say, all that we do, our everyday life experiences, that we would just find ways of just seeing you at work. That we wouldn't miss your provision because we have nothing to eat or nothing to wear. And Lord, ultimately, we are so grateful for the cross. Because we're grateful for what, you're, what you did through your son Jesus on the cross. And that we have hope and we have a future in spite of the way things may seem in our world right now. And so Lord, in all of this, I pray that you would help us, if needed, to change our perspective on our current life situation, our job, our marriage, whatever it is, Lord, that we would be content with where you have set us down, the places that you've led us to, that we'd be mindful that there's no better place to serve you than the place that you have set us down. And so, Lord, do a work in each of our lives that might change our hearts and change our minds about some of the things that we see in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.